Look at Exodus, shall we? Exodus chapter number 20. And again, for, for some time, just a few weeks, suppose, we'll be going through some of these uh, messages that are individual messages, not a series as of yet, but Exodus 20, something that I've been thinking about for a good long while. Actually, this was a question that was given to me some time ago, and as I dealt with this person about it, um, it spoke to my heart as well. Verse 4 says this, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, not our kind of jealousy, of course, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Father in heaven, please help us tonight for the next few moments, please, to be focused and submissive to your word and your will. Thank you for your word and and how beautifully and powerfully it corrects our thinking and sets us on the right path. May it do so tonight, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 again, you'll notice this very familiar and sometimes misquoted warning against idolatry. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now, of course, the oft misquoted and therefore misinterpreted part of this text is something that people call the generational curse, the generational curse. You know, this family over here or this boy is cursed because of something that his father or his grandfather or his great-grandfather did long before they were even born. In other words, it's in some people's minds, now again, teachers, preachers, and Christians, it's not just that we are under the curse that we're children of Adam, and therefore we all, all have the sin curse. No, this is something more, they think, and they derive from this and another text. It's something more as in more specific, more personal. In fact, it's why in some circles there are these cottage ministries that pop up here and there, so-called deliverance services, where people come and they, they may lay hands on you and they pray to break the bondage of some family or familial curse. God visits the sins of the fathers on the children, well, so, and then their children, and people say, you know, your great-great-grandfather or your great-great-grandfather was John Dillinger, the bank robber, and that's why you struggle with stealing or cheating the IRS. It's a curse. And they use this Bible verse as an example, and that curse needs to be broken. The problem is that's not what this warning means. And it is not what these verses teach. God does not punish the grandson for his grandfather's idolatry or any other sin you can fill in the blank. However, in the context of Exodus chapter 20, if your father, your grandfather and your great-grandfather, if they indeed were all idolaters, died in the wool, 
Would that therefore have an effect on you? Potentially being an idolater yourself. And then in the context of this warning, which is to the whole nation, if all the grandfathers and all the fathers and all the great-grandfathers were all idolaters, and it went on for generations, would the whole of the Israel, of the whole of the nation of Israel be consumed with idol worshipers? Well, the answer to that is of course. Of course, children are affected by the lies and decisions of their fathers and their grandfathers. That's really what it's teaching. You'll notice the last line of verse 5, the third and fourth generation, quote, of them that hate me. Look, folks, people who hate God influence and really teach their kids to hate God. That's not a shock. And these are the ones who are still under the curse. So that anybody who wants to break the curse, guess what God says next? Verse 6, he says, I'm the God who, of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto the thousands of them, that means the thousands of generations, that love me and keep my commandments. In other words, God's grace lasts a thousand times longer than his wrath. So you have to keep that in mind. Deuteronomy chapter 12, you can look at it on your screen, I think we have that. I'm going to read it. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. And so then it's their sons, sons and daughters, daughters they didn't burn in the fire. If you know the history of Israel. This is the reason why the curse goes on. It is because the children and the grandchildren perpetuate the idolatry. And so sure enough, as you might imagine, the people of God, God's people who misinterpret this text, typically also misuse the text in ways that even exist today in the minds of people. How so? Turn to Jeremiah 31, would you? Jeremiah chapter 31. And of course, this in Jeremiah now, as we noted, this is a lot of years have passed since the book of Exodus and God's command there. And predictably, after all of these years, those who misinterpret Exodus 20 also misapply it. And God is about to address that. Jeremiah 31. There's an interesting text here. You're going to notice that the Lord mentions a, through his prophet a very popular proverb it was a proverb in Israel that was based upon the text we began with way back in Exodus 20. As a matter of fact, there's a saying today about someone's teeth being on edge. There is a saying today that comes from the ancient proverb in the land of Israel. Look at verse 29. In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. All right, look up here. Here's the proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Ezekiel mentions the very same proverb for the very same reason. 
And again, obviously this was very popular at the time. And it was one that went straight to the heart of the problem of the nation of Israel, so much so that it led God to allow the Babylonians come and, and destroy Jerusalem and take the captives away. And that problem was the problem of blame shifting. And God says, I don't want to hear this anymore. And that day, no longer will you be able to say, I don't want to hear this excuse and blaming your sins, your idolatry on your ancestors. No, the soul, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. So that again, the Israelites were misusing a text in Scripture, made up a proverb about that text, and then indulged themselves in the folly of shifting blame, making excuses Today, it comes in the form of projection, something called gaslighting, and manipulation. It's not my fault that I'm the way I am. It's the boomers that did this. I hear that a lot, by the way. I teach high school and junior high. And I, it's odd, but I'm telling you, your young people, they're all over there right now. They're not going to listen to this. You know that. It's shocking how much they blame boomers. That's Brother Sam's generation, not mine. I mean, I missed it by a week, a week or two. I'm not sure. The boomers put us in this situation. Blame shifting. It's dad. It's mom. It's a generational curse that I am under. And so there's an excuse that's made. Great grandpa was a drunk. And that's why I am. It's the examples that I was, I was born under. So the examples in our country, we do have some bad examples just on alcoholism in this country. Do you know why every state has two senators? So one of them can be the designated driver. Amen? That's about truth. Sad. <laughs> we have bad examples. Dad ate sour grapes. That's why my teeth are set on edge. That's the proverb. It's not my fault. Nobody wanted to embrace or take the responsibility at this time in Jeremiah for their own problems. And this blame shifting is, is inherent. It goes all the way back to the garden. It's just part of our nature. I remember vividly when Waco happened. And Waco led to the Oklahoma City bombing and as you know, just a, a terrible time for our country. And the attorney general at the time was Janet Reno. Her sister was our county commissioner over here in Martin County when I was in high school. And Janet Reno, after that place burned down, she said on national news, I take full responsibility for what happened at Waco. I went, wow. Finally, somebody. She said, I take full, she was over the FBI and all the rest, I take full responsibility. I mean, a bunch of children burned to death, burned alive in that place. So what does taking full responsibility look like? She didn't get fired. She didn't quit. She didn't lose her pay. She didn't get a reprimand. Nothing happened. She got praised. And that, in my mind, in that time, at that period in our country, I remember thinking, wow, 
You can actually say, I take full responsibility when really all you're doing is shifting blame. You know, a couple hundred years ago, bed mattresses in America were filled with corn husks. That's how they were made. And typically in pioneer areas and so forth, it was the children's job to refill the family bed mattresses ever so often with corn husks. But they had to be very careful and very wise about it because if, if they weren't, they would run out of husks when they got all the way down to their own mattress. And running out of husks, they'd have to fill their own mattress with wood chips and, and other stuff that made them much less comfy. And that is where we get the old saying, you made your bed, you lie in it. You made your bed. You know, in this society today, that saying is just as antiquated and as old as the custom of putting corn husks in mattresses. People don't say, you know, you made your bed, you lie in it. Parents don't say that anymore to their children. Society doesn't like the sentiment of accepting the responsibility or the consequences of your own actions. There's an entirely new legal strategy in America that's called the abuse excuse. That's the legal strategy. It's not my fault. People have been exonerated, acquitted for horrible crimes because somewhere a psychologist said, well, this happened to them five years ago or when they were little. It's my dad's fault. There's a great illustration of this in 2 Kings, and it is an illustration, and I want you to turn there with me. But I've been thinking about it. 2 Kings chapter 2. Second Kings chapter 2, and look at verse 21. It says that he went forth unto the spring of the waters and cast the salt in there. And he said, thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. You know, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but one of the amazing, interesting, intriguing things about Elijah and Elisha and their ministries is how often, over and over again, water, God used water to demonstrate his power and to illustrate and send a message to his people. In this case, the Jordan River is parted and the spring at Jericho, the water there was healed. Later, Naaman would be healed by dipping himself, according to God's command, seven times in the waters of Jordan. In chapter 3, water came for the kings and their armies down in that dry valley, a wonderful miracle I've preached on before. In chapter 6, the axe head miraculously floated in the water. And then for Elijah, he was miraculously fed by the ravens and then, of course, drank the water that God provided there. He poured water on those sacrifices, remember, lots of water that were then consumed. And then he also parted the Jordan River and predicted a three-year drought of water. And so it is that with all of these miracles, by God's design, water was used both as a physical instrument of God's work, but oftentimes as a spiritual metaphor of God's word. In this instance, we have, I believe, a powerful spiritual message in the healing of Jericho's spring. Now, you remember that at this time, the nation of Israel and the land of Palestine is under, or Israel is under God's curse. 
Guess why they're under God's curse? The very thing that Exodus warned about, don't fall into idolatry. Sure enough, Ahab, their leader, his son Ahaziah, had led Israel into sin and idol worship. In fact, it's so bad, let me just do this. Look at chapter 1 real quick. This is amazing, verse 3. It says, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise and go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say unto them, is it not because there is not a God in Israel, Elohim, that ye go to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Imagine that in this land, even in life and death situations, people would turn to idols instead of their own God, the true omnipotent God. And so God raises up his prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And through them, God demonstrates his power and also speaks to his people. Go back to chapter 2 again. Notice verse 19. And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant. We love where we are, as my Lord seeth. But the water is not, it's bitter. And therefore the ground is barren. Now, folks, follow this carefully. So, all right, here's a, here's a city of people who have a very practical problem. And that is that although things are, and their situation seems pleasant, this fertile valley of the Jordan, it's worthless because the water, the spring, the main spring in that area had turned bitter. Don't forget the land was full of idolatry and it's so bad that everything in the area now is now dying. It's a metaphor. The situation was good. It was, after all, Canaan. But the water was bitter. And therefore, their own land was barren. And all of this parallels perfectly with what was happening in Israel spiritually. That idolatry was gradually polluting and destroying and making barren the whole nation and all of the people. And the Bible says that the men of the city who heard about Elijah, who heard about Elisha too, who heard about their miracles... That they decide to inquire of God's man as to what should be done. Because they thought of everything. They tried everything. And it wouldn't be long that all would be lost. And that introduces Elisha's answer to the dilemma. Verse 20, and he said, Elisha said, bring me a new cruise, a new bowl, if you will, and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. Now, I've studied this quite a bit, and I've got to be honest with you, I'm not sure why Elisha asked for these two elements, a new bowl, and fill it up with salt. I mean, salt would normally corrupt water, right, for irrigation purposes. And I don't know what the significance of these is. However, I think I realize the spiritual significance of what he does there. In fact, I know I do. Verse 21, and he went forth unto the spring of the waters and cast the salt in there. And said, thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters, and there shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. You'll notice the word there in verse 21, and I want you to think about it. There, there, according to this text, is the spring. This is the place where the waters originated. So that Elisha was simply going to the source of of the problem. And that's not all. He was doing this according to verse 21, thus saith the Lord, emphasizing that these men, to these men, that this was being done by God's word. There was a reason for it. 
So you know what you have in this miracle is a message. And again, a powerful reminder of what we're talking about tonight. That healing only occurs when you go right to the source of the bitterness. Right to the source and the very beginning of that problem. The heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And what I want to say tonight as a reminder to myself and all of us here and those of us who have a problem, you see barrenness, drought, iniquity, trouble, heartache. You have a problem with someone. Right now you can even think of them. I have a problem with that woman or that man. You have a problem with someone or some place or something. To those of you who maybe have, and we do in this country, a pleasant situation, but you see an unpleasant result, is simply this. Don't go anywhere else. Don't look anywhere else. Don't blame anything else other than the source of the problem. The source. Don't say, well, my fathers and my grandfathers and my great-grandfathers and Joe Biden and so on and so forth. You go to the source. A, you ought to identify the source of the problem and B, go to the source of the answer. Well, pastor, how do I do that? How do I identify? I got all these problems. How do I identify the source? Where's the spring of bitter waters? Where does it reside? All right. Here it is. Go home tonight. Walk through your front door. Go to the nearest mirror that you have. And look at it. And there, beloved, you will likely see the source of the problem. And by the way, don't look at it so that you see your wife behind you. (laughs) Or the kids. Look yourself in the eye. The, The salt has to go right to the spring, to the source. Go back with me to Jeremiah 31 real quick, would you? I want us to see this again. Jeremiah 31. God says, I don't want to hear this anymore. That the fathers have eaten the sour grapes, and that's why I have, my teeth are set on edge. Verse 29, in those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. And every man that eateth a sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Now, notice verse 33, which, by the way, is quoted in the New Testament book of Hebrews. But this shall be for the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, in dwelling Inside, individual hearts, individual salvation, individual redemption. But pastor, my problem isn't with me, it's with my boss. It's with my neighbor. It's the school. It's the church. It's Pastor Blaylock. He's my problem. It's the IRS. You know, all those things might be true in a secondary way, but none of those things can make you react the way you do. Not one of them. None of those things can make your heart cold. None of them can make you unhappy. 
Because we all know people who've had the worst boss. All kinds of outside opposition and trouble like Paul. But didn't get bitter. None of those things can force you to be bitter or backslidden or burdened or beaten. Now, the nation of Israel, beloved, was not given the luxury of blaming Moab for its problems. They could have. Or blaming the prophets of Baal or blaming Syria or Ahab or Ahaziah, nor of blaming their fathers. Why? Because the real source of their barren condition was the condition of their own heart. And folks, you know this. I mean, if there's one lesson that we learn in the Bible that's crystal clear in the scriptures is that God accepts humility from every person, every one of us. God embraces, he lifts up the humble. He he accepts humility. God accepts confession. If you come to him and say, Lord, me, it's all me. God accepts honesty, but God never accepts excuses. Don't come to him with excuses. In fact, if you read the Gospels and you look at all the people who came to Jesus with excuses for both their problems or their non-committal, not just following him, in fact, Lord, I had to go back and bury my father. What's wrong with that? Going to a funeral. He didn't accept it. You read through the Gospels. Our Lord never accepted excuses from people for, and, and we could, we could look at the society at the time and the Romans and the terrible Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and how corrupt they were and say, it's not, you know, it's not the people's fault, these, these leaders. The Lord always cut through the blame shifting. Always. And he always pointed to each individual heart. For from within, Jesus said, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. They didn't come on you because of your great-grandfather. I'll say it again. One of the signs of spiritual decay in this society now, maybe in particular, is this excuse-laden psychology and philosophy that saturates people's minds, and most especially your kids and your grandkids. Some time ago, a man in Georgia, you may remember this, confessed to committing a murder. He did it. Everybody knew he did it. He knew he did it. He confessed to it. But his defense was it was not his fault because he had eaten too much sugar, cotton candy to be, to be precise. And it made national news because somehow it affected his, whatever, brain. And the jury almost acquitted him. They were locked in for days trying to find a way to get this man off for murder. And you know, as bad as a situation of blame shifting and victimology is in the world, it's just worse when it's embraced by children of God. We cannot follow that path. Because it goes against everything that we read in the word of God. Paul says in Romans 14 and verse 12, So then each one of us shall give account of himself before God. Could he be more clear? Each one of us, that's singling you out, shall give account of himself. I will stand before God 
for what Jim Blaylock does and says through my life. When Adam tried to shift blame, remember? The woman thou gave. This is the very beginning. First people ever. The woman thou gavest me. It's not my fault. Did God accept that? Oh, no. And then Eve, the snake. In fact, she sort of blames God. The snake, you. Same thing Adam said. The woman you gave me. It's the old thing about, you know, Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the, the snake. And the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Okay, I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> no, what God said was, Adam, he said, thou hast listened to thy wife because thou hast done this. You did it, Adam. Eve had no excuse either. See, the Lord was saying, Adam, you could listen to my voice. Yeah, you listened to your wife, but you could have listened to my voice. Elisha did not take the salt to the fields way out in the barren lands, just sprinkle it everywhere. He took it to the source, right to the spring, and put the salt, if you will, right here. That's why I say go home and look in the mirror. Many years ago, one of our church members came to me after church on a Sunday night. And she said, Pastor, I really enjoy your messages. But every once in a while you do something that you shouldn't do. It's rude. I said, well, I don't want to be rude. I was fairly young then. I said, what's that? She said, you point. You get kind of forceful and you point. Like that. You know, Disney, you're supposed to like. <laughs> That's polite, I guess. She said, I noticed it last Sunday night. You point. I said, whoa. I said, what did I preach on last Sunday night? I'm talking to her. I said, oh, it was on gossip. You were under conviction. I pointed right at her. And I said, I told her I was kidding, but her face got red, so I don't know. No wonder you didn't want me to point. Nathan told David a terrible story. Remember? It's a terrible story. David got mad. He said, we got to do something. That's awful. Who would ever do such a thing? And Nathan pointed at him and said, thou art the man. You're the problem here. You know, beloved, God is always willing to heal a broken heart and always those bitter waters, but only at the source, only where it begins. I learned a long time ago, just don't come to God carrying a bag full of excuses or blame shifting and pointing to this person and that person if it weren't for this or that. Dr. Bob used to say, no doubt the problem is with you. I think working with college kids for decades, he heard so many excuses. That became one of his most famous things. No doubt the problem is with you. So let us stop toiling in somebody else's farm, somebody else's problems and faults. Let's stop looking out the window for the cause and maybe again look in the mirror. Because look, we know this, God loves it when one of his own takes responsibility for his own actions and reactions. People can't make you react the way you react. And more importantly, God can bless a person like that. And again, we are living in the midst of a country of victims. Everybody is a victim. Therefore, nobody is responsible. Nobody is the, it's not my fault generation. But we don't have to be like that. 
We can rise above the spirit of victimology and blame shifting, making excuses, passing the buck, and we can go straight to the heart of the problem. Passage, not the way I am, just this is the way I am. No, it's not. It's the way you want to be. It's so-and-so's fault. The devil made me do it. It must have been the will of God. No, no, no. God's will is for all of us to be very accustomed to confession, to honesty, to humility, to responsibility, and to action. The sins of the fathers are only visited on the next generation if indeed that generation embraces the sins of the fathers. Then it's visited. I'll put it this way. The New Testament uses the word new a lot. You may have noticed in verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I make a new. That verse is quoted in the New Testament. The Bible says all things are become new. Think about this for a minute. This is, this is the New Testament. This is, this is our ethic today. That God promises a new birth. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. If any man be in Christ, doesn't matter what happened before. He's a new creation, new creature. All things are passed away. Romans 7, 6 says, but now we are delivered from the law that we should serve in newness of spirits. All new stuff, a new commandment I give unto you, Jesus said. Ephesians 2 talks about the new man. What's that mean? It's all a reminder, folks, that nobody has to be stuck in the curse or the iniquity of anything that's in the past, of anything that is, quote, the old. Because old things are passed away. And that's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, there is now, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. There's no curse to anyone who is in Christ Jesus. All the promises are new. Eliminate. Because everything's new, eliminate any excuses, blame shifting for the old. This is really, really hard to do. But by the grace of God, we can stop making excuses. Stop blaming other people. Up in East Tennessee, there was a teenage boy who never, ever did anything wrong. Now, he was constantly in trouble always on the cusp of getting expelled or suspended in school, which is crazy because, folks, he never did anything wrong, at least in his mind. Literally never was Mr. Innocent always, always, therefore, blaming, making excuses, pointing fingers, one day, he was caught in class in the hallway with chewing tobacco. This is a Christian school. Therefore, tobacco was not allowed, even though it's Tennessee. So the teacher and the principal go up to him, and, you know, once again, this kid who never does anything wrong. Mark, spit it out. Spit it out. I mean, stuff's drizzling down here, you know. Spit it out. Spit it out. Spits it in the garbage. Mark, that's 50 demerits you've already gotten. He knows what that means. That's suspension. And oh, he protests. Nope. 
It's not fair. It's not right. It wasn't mine. Whose was it? It was John's. What was it doing in your mouth? I was just holding it for him. <laughs> Mark, can you hear yourself talking right now? Just, just so used to making excuses. To no one's surprise, Mark would go on to appear before one judge after another judge, constantly making excuses. It's not my fault. If, this had hadn't, if they hadn't done this, if he hadn't done that. Constantly making excuses on his way to jail. Blaming others. Blame shifting. When all he really needed to do was just own up. Everybody was there who loved him to help him, to encourage him. Just own up. Go to the Lord and say, I did this. You know, God, I've, I've always been blessed by something that one of the aged preachers told me years ago. He said, he said, Jim, all God wants of you is to go before him and be honest. Just get on your knees and be honest with God. That's a humbling thing, but it's a life-changing thing because God welcomes that. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And God's people said... Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we know our society that this is a spiritual issue. We see in your word that it is a spiritual problem of shifting blame, not taking responsibility, not recognizing our own heart. And so because of that, Father, may we see that the spiritual answer is in your word. It's coming to you, being honest, humble, repentant, and then obeying your word from there. Bless our people, Lord, and this church to that very end, that we would have fruit for, for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.